I've titled these comments, The Three Dimensions of Social Life and Experience. Uh, but the primary one that Haidt discusses in this, uh, in his chapter nine is uh, divinity. His first sentence in the chapter, uh, our life is the creation of our minds, gives us a pretty good clue that we're going to be talking about meaning systems in this particular chapter. I think this is one of the most important ideas to take from the course as a whole, actually, that how we perceive our world depends on the mental constructs that we bring to it, and that our action in the world is often explained primarily on the basis of these constructs within the meaning system. However, there is a biological aspect uh, to this chapter as well, because these three dimensions that uh, Haidt talks about he views as having uh, a biological basis. And one of the things to look for in this chapter is the way in which the biology and the meaning system explanations uh, interact, interrelate uh, uh, to one another. On the biological side, Haidt seems to be saying that humans are created with the ability to evaluate situations, perceive situations, perceive their social world on three dimensions. One is a dimension of liking or closeness, how close we feel uh, or perceive someone else to be. Our kinship is uh, one of the most important variables on this, recognizing our kin and perhaps acting differently towards people who are uh, our relation. The second dimension is status. We recognize that some people are above or below us in a hierarchy. And Haidt traces this back to uh, biological evolution of the same kinds of traits that we see in animals today in struggles over territoriality, uh, hierarchies within a group of uh, apes or chimpanzees. And higher status uh, on these dimensions makes one more attractive. But the dimension that Haidt is really interested in in the chapter is the divinity dimension. And you shouldn't mistake Haidt to be saying that he believes that there uh, is a God and that uh, we can act in ways or feel in ways that are closer to God or not. Um, he is suggesting that that's one expression of this uh, divinity dimension, that we experience our world in a way that some people interpret as making us uplifted, closer uh, to the divine, whatever that uh, might be, and it might not be uh, necessarily a god. Some people have talked about a dimension from uh, ignoble to noble. Uh, many people talk about a dimension from bestial to angelic. In this latter, we have uh, behavior, emotions, cognition, sometimes that we think make us uh, no better than the, the lowest of animals. But at other times, we're able to think things, feel things, uh, and behave in ways uh, that go to the edge of the possibilities uh, for human. And this is uh, this dimension is what Haidt uh, is calling uh, divinity. He associates uh, moral motives uh, with this dimension. What he means by this is that uh, at times, we're motivated to act in ways and to think in ways that will make us feel higher on this dimension, that will uplift us. 
So the, it calls this a moral motive because there's the notion of uh, right and wrong, that it would be right, it would be a good thing uh, to act in ways that would make us uh, feel more uplifted. Religious experiences may certainly uh, push or pull us in that uh, particular direction, but uh, religiosity is not necessarily uh, what is involved here, although Haidt uses many examples based in religious situations. Much of Haidt's discussion is based on the emotion of disgust. And he talks about the, uh, the origins of the emotion of disgust. And here he does take a biological position. He says that the feelings we have of disgust have evolved in humans and become part of human nature. The evolutionary idea here is that uh, an animal that uh, avoids contact with the waste products, uh, with rotting meat, uh, with blood, uh, with corpses, with any kind of uh, germ-laden uh, substances, would have a greater chance of survival. So if some people in the uh, early development of humans uh, felt an emotion of disgust in the presence of any of these kinds of things, that would be a benefit. They would stay away from them and consequently have more likelihood of uh, reaching reproductive age and reproducing offspring who would presumably have uh, the same characteristic. So this emotion of disgust in the presence of these life-threatening uh, substances uh, has evolved. But Haidt is not saying that all disgust is always in the presence of these kinds of things. He's saying that's the biological evolutionary origin. Once humans had the emotion of disgust, it could be applied uh, and be expressed, experienced in other contexts. He points out that on this uh, dimension of divinity, uh, disgust is on the lower side and it marks situations where we uh, see ourselves or conceptualize uh, ourselves in relationship to the animal aspect, the bestial aspect of ourselves. But the emotion readily attaches, he says, uh, to norms uh, of various sorts. Uh, some that would be closest to this, for instance, uh, think about uh, burping, uh, other bodily noises that uh, you sometimes make. Many people find these uh, disgusting. Now, these are not so life-threatening, and so it's not likely that uh, an aversion of a sense of disgust uh, emerged, evolved with respect to these, but the emotion of disgust that we have gets attached to them uh, as norms uh, that are particularly connected to the more animal-like aspects of ourselves. But it could be attached to any kind of norm, and violations of norms could provoke uh, disgust. And in these situations, then, the meaning system has to come into play because we have to know the norms, we have to know the meanings of the various behaviors that we might observe or participate in ourselves. In the case of norms, uh, a particular behavior might be disgusting in one context, like burping after a meal in North America, typically not considered uh, particularly polite, and many people find disgusting. 
but in other parts of the world, uh, a burp might be taken to mean uh, great content or satisfaction with the meal. Haidt uh, is arguing that disgust is one emotion that's involved in our moral reasoning. And by moral reasoning, uh, we mean uh, making decisions about what's right and what's wrong. He describes uh, three general approaches, what he calls ethics, um, three general approaches to making moral decisions. Uh, he talks about autonomy, community, and divinity or purity. The ethic of autonomy is uh, concerned with protecting people uh, from harm and protecting people against um, lack of liberty. At near the end of the chapter, uh, he quotes uh, Gloria Steinem, who I talked about briefly in the feminist uh, psychology uh, commentary. Uh, she says, self-esteem is the basis of any democracy. And what the connection, he says, is that there's a claim that sexism, racism, uh, oppression, all of these ways of limiting a person's liberty and make particular groups of people feel unworthy and therefore undermine their participation uh, in democracy. So an ethic of autonomy is very concerned with uh, sexism and racism because these limit the ability of people uh, in their daily, uh, daily lives. And in general, uh, the ethic of autonomy sees moral decisions as being made in terms of whether the action that's under consideration uh, supports uh, liberty or uh, impedes uh, liberty, including uh, harm. If a person, if an action is likely to harm someone, then it's seen as impeding upon their, uh, their liberty. White says that uh, educated North Americans, Western Europeans, uh, are inclined to make and argue about uh, moral issues primarily on this dimension. In other parts of the world, Haidt says that uh, many people make moral decisions, argue moral issues on the basis of an ethic of community. In this ethic, uh, loyalty to the community, for instance, loyalty to the family, is an important aspect of deciding right and wrong. An action is right to the extent that it's loyal to the needs and interests of the, of the family or the community. The integrity of the community is important. In a way, you might think of um, what Gilligan had to say about uh, women looking at the Heinz dilemma and emphasizing an ethic of care and responsibility is emphasizing something more along the community uh, line. But again, its primary concern is with the uh, divinity ethic or a purity uh, ethic. Here the idea is that it's possible to make uh, decisions about the morality of a particular action on the basis of its purity or divinity. Is it in line with the divine? Is it in line with your conception of uh, godliness, uh, for instance? Or, on the other hand, is it uh, something that's uh, there's a kind of contamination It's more on the bestial uh, side? People who value the purity dimension or divinity dimension uh, are likely to say things like, well, you have the divine within you. You have all of this incredible possibility to rise above. And 
you shouldn't contaminate that by these low-level uh, immoral actions. You should stay in relationship, in a positive relationship, to the divine aspects, to be the best that you can be. White points out that people who uh, use this dimension primarily or who consider it important are also likely to look at aspects of the society and, want, and to want to reorganize the society to eliminate uh, the ungodly and maintain uh, the godly. So there's a lot of concern of things like alcohol, drugs, prostitution that bring us down, so to speak, on this divinity dimension. And the people who really care about this dimension think in, the, in terms, conceptualize the world in terms of this dimension, often seek to change the world to eliminate uh, those kinds of uh, options in people's lives. He says they seek to make the ideal society consistent uh, with the divinity that they uh, understand. This often puts them at odds, of course, then with uh, people who use an ethic of autonomy, because uh, from that point of view, uh, drugs, uh, alcohol, prostitution, any of these kinds of uh, problematic uh, behaviors are seen as uh, choices that people can make, not necessarily that they're good choices, but that, that it's up to the person to make these choices themselves. Now, so far as the emotion of disgust is concerned, Haidt talks about it in a way that sort of makes it clear that on the div divinity dimension, you could experience something as being disgusting, uh, ungodly, undivine. But actually, disgust could be experienced by somebody who is using an autonomy uh, ethic as well. Gloria Steinem, for instance, seems to basically be saying that she finds sexism disgusting. She finds racism disgusting. This uh, closing in, this uh, boxing in lack of uh, autonomy that sexism and racism uh, creates, is a dis she feels disgust in the presence of that and wants to change that situation. Somebody using a community ethic could look at the behavior of an individual uh, and, and consider it a betrayal of a family, for instance, or a betrayal of a spouse or a betrayal of a sibling, and say, that's disgusting. How could you possibly do that? And if, as Haidt says, that um, elevation is the emotion we feel at the opposite end of disgust, and I would say that elevation could be experienced by somebody thinking in terms of autonomy, thinking in terms of collectivity, um, community, or thinking in terms of divinity. Though again, Haidt's emphasis is on the divinity dimension. So we've got these uh, two emotions, disgust and the one that he's introducing called elevation. And they mark uh, our feelings about where a particular action or idea or thought stands uh, on these uh, three dimensions. Haidt says particularly on the divinity dimension. Well, before I talk about uh, the emotion of elevation, which is one of Haidt's uh, principal topics, I want to just raise what I think is an important psychological question. If we have these three different uh, ethics, what determines which one a person uses? If I think primarily in evaluating the morality of a situation in terms of the autonomy ethic, where did that come from? Why do I do that rather than the collective or the, the divinity? Somebody else more inclined to the other, where did that uh, come from? Biologically, Haidt is telling us 
we have humans have the capacity to use all three. Gilligan's work on moral development suggests, raises the hypothesis that possibly uh, there are sex differences with respect to this. Uh, women more inclined to use the uh, community ethic rather than uh, the other two. But uh, I think still, even there you could say, well, is that a product of biology or a product of uh, social uh, construction. And in general, I would say that social construction has to be central uh, to these possibilities. I would think that if we think in terms of meaning systems, we look at behaviors, uh, we look at uh, thoughts and say, what's the meaning of that behavior? What does it mean that the person thinks that way or sees the world that way? What does it mean that the person acts in a particular way? Well, for some people, it seems to me that their meaning systems are likely to be organized in terms of the, this purity dimension. Uh, for others, it might be the autonomy dimension or the community uh, dimension. Or it could be some combination, or it could vary from circumstance to circumstance. But I would say that the uh, answer lies in these meaning systems. And where do the meaning systems come from? Well, I'd see these as social constructions. Well, in the coming weeks, we'll speak more about the social construction of meaning systems. In general, it's the topic of uh, Mogadam's last chapter. But in general, uh, what I'm suggesting is that the way that we interact with others in our environment, the ideas that we take from the others who are important to us and from the media around us, all have a, a forming influence on the organization of our meaning system and the dimensions along which we're likely to imagine or evaluate any particular situation, including moral situations, questions of right and wrong. Now, back on the quest side of biology, though, uh, Haidt quotes Eliade, and says that, who says that the perception of the sacred is universal. And by this, he doesn't mean that the perception of God is uh, universal. What he means is that uh, some kind of, that people have it in their nature, it's, the, it's human nature, it's a possibility, just like uh, vision and hearing, uh, we have this perception of some things as being higher, that that's built into the way we look at the world, that the ability to perceive the sacred is not itself a social construction. Now, what we perceive as sacred and what makes us feel like we're in the presence of the sacred may be socially constructed, but our ability to do this is a biologically evolved aspect of the human. And because of that, Eliad says that uh, in our secular societies, those of us who don't think in terms of, uh, of a god, we find ourselves uh, encountering the sacred in other ways. This is what um, Haidt calls crypto-religious behavior, crypto-religious thoughts. We have places that are highly significant to us where certain things uh, happened. Uh, we have uh, objects that we keep that are highly significant uh, to us. It goes beyond just being important. There's a religious-like uh, sacredness that has nothing to do with uh, a god or uh, any particular religion. But Haidt says this is exactly the problem, actually, that many people who do think in religious and uh, godly terms 
uh, are concerned about the, the uh, secularization uh, of the world, and they want to protect uh, this border between the sacred and the secular. So how to conceptualize this border? Haidt is saying that everybody has a sense of the sacred. This is human nature. But not everybody believes in God or uh, any particular uh, religious uh, theology. But for many, sacred and uh, religiosity are mixed uh, together. And the secular is impure from that point of view. So that's the way sometimes calls it a purity uh, dimension. And uh, people who think uh, from that point of view are very concerned about uh, the borderline between uh, the secular and the uh, sacred. And such a person is likely to want to try to change the society uh, to minimize the secular aspects in favor of the sacred aspects. Well, these differing viewpoints uh, can make quite a difference uh, in the world. And so consequently, understanding something about the origin of them seems to me an important uh, psychological initiative. Well, Haidt speaks specifically about this emotion of elevation, which he describes as a movement on the divinity uh, dimension uh, towards the divine or towards the sacred or towards a particular individual's conception of what uh, sacred might mean. In his discussion of elevation, he talks about uh, how when he first was thinking about this, he thought just in terms of the six uh, basic emotions that many people have identified and are associated with a psychologist, actually he doesn't name, Paul Ekman, who did studies uh, to look at whether people in different parts of the world expressed uh, emotions in their face in the same way. And he went around the world with uh, photographs of people experiencing different emotions and asked people from different cultures uh, whether they could uh, identify the emotions or not. And uh, he claims a good deal of success with respect to six uh, particular emotions. It turns out there's a good deal of discussion, debate uh, about this, uh, but many people are convinced by Ekman's uh, arguments that there are at least six universal emotions. That is, they're experienced and expressed in the same way by people uh, all over the world. And I've given you a link so that you can read uh, just a little bit more of the story of what that's uh, about. But Haidt tells us about some studies that he's done with his students on uh, this emotion of elevation, this feeling of uh, being uplifted uh, in some way. He talks about how in the study he has to distinguish between elevation and happiness. And he has to distinguish uh, each of those from something he calls non-moral admiration. So for instance, he talks about uh, watching a video of Michael Jordan uh, play basketball. And this is a kind of admiration we could all have for a fantastic uh, athlete, but it's not a moral uh, situation. And so that's different from what he means by elevation. Well, that's actually part of the question is, is that different uh, from elevation? So I mention this because uh, this is a good example of a question about the validity of a construct. Haidt has experienced something, seen some things that leads him to believe that there's an emotion 
that others haven't talked about, which wants to call elevation. To show that that's really a valid construct, he has to differentiate it from other constructs. You say, oh, no, you're just talking about that's happiness. Or he said, no, that's just, you know, that's admiration. So he has to design his experiment in a way that will distinguish these characteristics and show that uh, it's valid, so to speak, uh, to speak about an emotion called uh, elevation that's different from these others. Of course, he also has to show that it can be demonstrated reliably. And if he can't do that, then there's no point in talking about uh, validity in the first place. So to demonstrate this validity, uh, he uses uh, videotapes of uh, Seinfeld, which he thinks will make people happy, but he uses videotapes of Oprah, which he thinks will elevate and make people feel elevated or uplifted. And if these things are in fact different, then he should get different behavior from people who've watched uh, the different types of videotapes. An interesting thing that he learns from uh, the study is that uh, this feeling of uh, elevation or uplifting leads people to feel like uh, they should take action, that they want to do something uh, helpful to improve themselves, to improve the world, and so forth. But they don't actually do it uh, in most uh, cases. So that leads Haidt and his students to ask, well, why, uh, why is that? And the hypothesis that they come up with is that this emotion of uh, elevation or uplifting is the result of certain biological processes that involve this chemical we've discussed before, oxytocin. So they devise a, they devise a clever experiment uh, to see uh, on their limited budget whether they can demonstrate that people who feel uh, this emotion, uh, this elevation, uh, actually are uh, producing more oxytocin uh, than others who are, who are not experiencing the emotion. And the results of that experiment uh, with the lactating mothers uh, seems to demonstrate that, in fact, yes, there is more oxytocin being produced. So um, it's not definitive by any means, uh, as he describes in the, in the text, but he's uh, pretty happy with uh, the result because he says it makes sense that if oxytocin is at the basis, at the base of this emotion, oxytocin is related to bonding uh, rather than uh, to action. And so it would make sense that the person would feel bonded uh, together with uh, the people that they're watching, and others want to do something for them. But because oxytocin is not particularly effective on any of the behavioral system, that that uh, desire will pass uh, as the chemical process inside the body uh, changes. Now, I think it's interesting to ask, well, what could be done in situations like that? Here you've got an opening for change. Uh, what could be done to, to capitalize on that, to make uh, the action actually occur? And I think the answer to that's going to have to be some sort of a rational plan. You're going to have to sit down with some, uh, the emotion and the rationality together and work out a system and commit yourself uh, to it. And I'll leave to you to see if you can come up with some specific ideas about how we might transform this feeling of elevation into action on a more regular, permanent uh, basis. But I want to move on here to talk about some other aspects of uh, 
the elevation of motion. Uh, one question uh, has to do with the uh, whether this feeling of elevation is restricted uh, to his third dimension of divinity or purity. And I would suggest that uh, no, it's not any, you could see this even uh, in the examples that he gave of elevation. He talks about uh, this gentleman uh, from a, a Unitarian church who describes a situation in which he felt uh, a very strong feeling of elevation. And it had to do with a situation where the members of the congregation were voting on whether or not to become a welcoming congregation. And this means uh, a congregation within the uh, Unitarian Church that uh, welcomes uh, homosexuals to participate uh, in and be members of the church. The congregation, in fact, does uh, vote uh, unanimously to become a welcoming congregation. And uh, this man describes how he experienced uh, this elevation in response to the love that he saw being expressed uh, by the members of the congregation, in particular towards one particular member of the congregation who uh, had spoken openly about being gay. So Haidt seems to be attributing this uh, feeling of elevation to an attribution along the uh, uh, purity or uh, divinity dimension, that the man is looking and he's seeing this uh, love that uh, humans are able to express, and he sees that as sort of as the best of of humanity. This is a truly divine uh, aspect of humans, and it overwhelms him, and he feels uh, uplifted by it. But I would suggest that there, it's just as likely that what's going on here is that uh, the man is reacting to both the autonomy and the community ethic. Uh, on the community aspect, uh, he's seen the people in the in his group uh, being loyal to one another. Here's in particular is this one member uh, of their community, and people are being loyal to him and welcoming him uh, into the congregation. In addition, you have the autonomy idea, the whole idea of uh, the lack of autonomy that's produced by any kind of restriction on uh, homosexuality. So this gentleman's sense of uplift could also come in part from uh, his experience of seeing this, uh, these kinds of obstacles being removed and uh, people being given their autonomy and liberty to worship uh, in the place of their choosing. Haidt's uh, discussion rests on this notion of agape, the, a kind of love that has no specific object but is a love for uh, humankind uh, in general. He says that it can be very powerful to witness uh, this kind of love and that that's why uh, he associates the experience that the man has in the situation with the, uh, with the divine, that this agape is a, a kind of divine form. But I'm suggesting that it could be equally uplifting uh, to witness uh, tolerance and to witness acceptance, things that would come with from an ethic of autonomy and community. And that uh, so these characteristics, tolerance and acceptance, along with uh, agape, uh, could be conceptualized as on this divine dimension, one of the problems that Haidt mentioned several times is uh, the existence of a group of people 
who wish to restrict the society in some fashion to conform to their particular conception of uh, the purity or divinity dimension. He talks on page 199, for instance, about the split between the Christian left and the Christian right, and says that uh, some people see tolerance and acceptance as part of their nobler selves, but uh, that would be the Christian left that he's speaking about, uh, emphasizing the autonomy uh, dimension in particular. Um, but others feel that they can best honor God by working to change society and its laws to conform to the ethic of divinity, even if that means imposing religious laws on people of other faiths. If you've read the uh, Dixon uh, article already and listened to my comments about it, you'll know that uh, Dixon uh, described a similar situation with a uh, two uh, groups within uh, Muslim uh, society in Britain. One eager to interact and dialogue with non-Muslim groups uh, in order to promote uh, tolerance and acceptance, and the other uh, wishing to cut off uh, interaction with non-Muslim groups and to seek to establish a society uh, in con that was not contaminated uh, by the uh, secular actions uh, of the society around them. Thinking of elevation as being on this uh, third dimension of uh, divinity, uh, Height tells us some of the kinds of things that are likely to produce that uh, feeling. Uh, one, he says, is nature. Uh, the vastness uh, of nature in particular. And he associates this with the idea that uh, the things that are likely to promote uh, elevation, a sense of elevation, are things that involve a shrinking of the self or a transcending of the self. When we go to the Rockies and see them for the first time, to the Grand Canyon, to Niagara Falls even, the vastness of these natural uh, features overwhelm the self. Uh, our focus is no longer on the self. It's, uh, it becomes small in comparison uh, to what we're observing. Now, the thing doesn't have to be vast in physical space. It could be uh, an interaction with, a, with an animal in its natural environment. Uh, there's a kind of vastness that would come from that, which would take away all attention from uh, the self. We might say there's a transcending of the self. There's an experience of awe, not in the awesome of everyday speech, where we just mean as Haidt says, uh, oh, double good uh, for you, but a deep, meaningful, uh, sacred uh, feeling of awe. So nature can do this, uh, but Haidt tells us that uh, also in uh, meditation, uh, we can have a, another kind of transcending or shrinking uh, of the self, and the result is a sense of uh, unity with the universe, a kind of oneness uh, of being. Height describes how some who think in uh, religious terms about this uh, divinity dimension even uh, think of the self as uh, the door through which Satan uh, enters in to contaminate uh, on this purity uh, dimension. Uh, under the headings Satanic Self, I've given you a link to um, 
a Time Magazine article about the uh, the minister, uh, Rick Warren, that he mentions who wrote uh, this best-selling book. And some of you may uh, have heard of Rick Warren uh, in the, uh, just recently. Uh, he was selected by uh, Obama to do the invocation at uh, Obama's inauguration. And many people uh, were very disappointed by this choice, highly critical of it, because uh, Rick Warren uh, is, uh, has some fairly negative views about homosexuality. He's inclined to see uh, homosexuality as a sin, as a, an impurity. The liberal backers of Obama uh, are the very people that Haidt tells us are much more likely to evaluate um, moral actions, moral ideas on the basis of autonomy and the restriction of homosexuality uh, would certainly go against the, the, this idea on the autonomy ethic. Haidt speaks specifically about homosexuality near the end of the chapter and says that one of the reasons that uh, he can't go along with the divinity ethic being allowed to supersede the autonomy ethic and uh, modern democracy is because exactly of this uh, kind of push against homosexuals and other groups uh, to limit uh, their liberties on the basis of some judgment of impurity. But Haidt does feel that uh, the self is involved in this elevation emotion. Elevation involves a shrinking or transcending of the self. Uh, he talks about a quieting of the inner chatter. Among other methods that he talks about for accomplishing this transcendence, he includes uh, studies of uh, drugs. Um, an important thing to note uh, about the studies of drugs is that uh, we're looking at a biological simulation uh, here. When we have a meaning system, people experience a particular situation, they evaluate it. Certainly there has to be a biological under uh, basis uh, for, for that feeling, whatever it is. Suppose we give people a simulation, suppose we could give people a drug that would cause those same biological reactions in the absence of any particular uh, meaning system. What would happen there? What seems to be the case is that there are drugs that uh, that people can be given in this way, but the result that you get depends a great deal on the situation in which you place the people. Uh, in the particular study that uh, Haidt describes, uh, the people were listening uh, to church services. And uh, in this setting, uh, the preparation that they had had uh, leading up to it, uh, people had very deep, profound uh, experiences. They interpreted the messages, the situation, uh, in highly meaningful fashion. The same thing might not happen uh, in a different uh, setting. For instance, if people took these same drugs uh, before going out to a nightclub, it uh, might lead to something uh, very different. Just as an aside, I want to point out that uh, Haidt uses this term active placebo, and you should recall that from the early chapter in uh, Mogadam. And I'll leave it uh, to you to confirm that uh, Haidt has used the term 
correctly in, in association with the definition given by Mogadam. Another possibility that uh, we could study for its transcending uh, effects, I think, is music. Uh, Haidt doesn't mention music at all, but it does seem to me that many people have uh, this experience of elevation in listening uh, and becoming totally absorbed in a particular piece of music. Another aspect that uh, Haidt discusses with respect to elevation is he compares it to Maslow's uh, description of what he calls peak experience. And the conclusion that uh, he comes to is that Maslow was describing uh, the same thing, uh, but he was emphasizing the secular aspects of it. In fact, um, I think it would be reasonable to say that Maslow was trying to demonstrate that people by human, na by human nature have these peak experiences and they seek them out and that religion is one means of promoting peak experience. In fact, this peak experience capability may account for our um, religiosity. So Maslow seems to be trying to give a secular explanation uh, of religion. This isn't uh, uncommon among psychologists. Uh, the study of the psychology of religion, uh, many people in this area are looking for explanations of why people formulate uh, religions and stories of religion and why they need a God and how they uh, use the idea of God. Uh, many cultural critics have even gone so far as to say that psychology has become the new religion of secular states, that people go to psychology and go to psychologists for the same reason that people in earlier times went to uh, religion and uh, religious uh, priests and ministers. I don't mean to say that every psychologist uh, is an atheist, and many schools of theology worked very comfortably with uh, psychologists, uh, an area of psychology called pastoral counseling, where uh, ministers learn how to be uh, helpful therapeutic uh, with uh, the members of their uh, congregation. Back uh, with respect to peak experience, in particular in secular elevation, Haidt uh, makes this point about religion uh, being one means of promoting peak experiences, but he also says that uh, religion in some organized uh, churches, some organized institutions, can become very bureaucratic. And in fact, it uh, doesn't lead people to peak experience, and they look elsewhere, they begin to look elsewhere. And Haidt says that uh, when they go looking, one way to conceptualize this process is say what they're looking for is the good. They're looking for is the beautiful. Or in the case, perhaps uh, Cosgrove and Flynn, uh, Dixon, the articles that we read, what they're looking for is the socially just. It's the good. It's the beautiful. Uh, and for some people, Social justice is uh, the good and the beautiful. And these things are what will promote this uh, feeling of peak experience, uh, secular elevation. How will we find this uh, good? How will we find this beautiful? Haidt quotes uh, Maslow on page 206 and says, Education must be seen as at least partially an effort to produce the good human being, to foster the good life and the good society. My own favorite uh, educator, John Dewey, 
proposes that dialogue is at the heart of this, that education has to be about learning how to discuss with others who are different from ourselves what the nature of the good is and what the nature of the beautiful is. Haidt is making the point that that discussion has to somehow back off of the myth of pure evil. Uh, the liberals among us, the conservatives among us, we have to discard this idea that the other is evil. Haidt tells us that he's by and large on the liberal side of these debates, but he's trying to help us understand and thinks it's absolutely essential that everyone understand that people both on the liberal and the conservative side of the culture wars uh, are well-intentioned and have a, a basis for the positions which they're, uh, which they're taking. And that it's only when we begin to understand as good psychologists what the origin of those ideas, values, beliefs are in the meaning system as well as the biological uh, aspects that lead uh, to these, that we'll be able to actually make progress in the society. Now, some of you may remember that uh, at the beginning of the course, I posted a video of Haidt uh, giving a TED talk, and that the the topic of his video was uh, how why it's difficult for conservatives and liberals to speak to one another. In that video, he goes through some of these same ideas about the dimensions of morality. And uh, so I encourage you perhaps to go back and have another look at that video since we've had some more discussion of where he's uh, coming from.